Welcome back to Mirror with a Memory. I'm your host, Martine Sims. We've spent our first few episodes focused on people, on biometrics, visibility, invisibility, how we prove and assert and change and mask and communicate who we are. Now we're gonna take a moment to zoom out, way out and up in a lot of cases. As we shift from variations of portraiture to variations of reading, imaging, and utilizing the land. There are two threads we wanna pull on here. One is the environmental impact of how AI-enabled systems are made, how they operate, and how they quickly become obsolete. The other involves the new ways in which landscape photography and AI-powered aerial surveillance relate to one another and impact how we see, understand, delineate, and in some cases, assail our world. My name is Kate Crawford, and I study the social, political, and cultural implications of artificial intelligence. And I've been doing that for well, well over 10 years now. And I'm really interested in the way that the technical systems that interpolate us every day are creating particular sorts of worldviews that have far-reaching impacts. So that's really what my work has focused on for a long time, looking at the histories, the politics, and the environmental implications of technical systems. Kate often works in an art context too. She's collaborated with the artist Trevor Paglin on a series of projects, including Training Humans, which revealed the collections of photographs used by governments and corporations to train AI systems and how to see and classify our world, many of which were used without their subject's knowledge or permission. Trevor's work was also the subject of an exhibition at Carnegie Museum of Art that closed in March 2021. Kate's collaboration with the artist Vladin Joller, Anatomy of an AI System, was recently acquired by the Museum of Modern Art. We'll get to that project shortly, but first I wanted to go back to Kate's earliest interest in AI, which is tied to natural disasters and early attempts to use AI to track their impact. How did you start researching artificial intelligence specifically? I mean, I really came to this space by studying large-scale data systems, and this was around 12 years ago. I was really looking at the ways in which social media platforms and systems were being used to study natural disasters, and this was being seen somehow as like a legitimate data set to understand how communities were being impacted and, and how governments should respond. And I was really troubled by starting to sort of really look into these data systems and, and the data itself and thinking about who is really represented there, who uses these systems, you know, what kinds of groups in society are overrepresented there, which ones are underrepresented there. Of course, at that time, we knew that particularly on, on platforms like Twitter, they were, you know, very dominated by people living in urban centers, by people who had higher uh, disposable incomes, by people who were very much associated with particular forms of, of privilege and access. And using that as a type of ground truth struck me as, as deeply problematic. And then around, gosh, around 2012 was the sort of first time I had the opportunity to work inside an industrial research lab. And that was at around the time when machine learning was really going through this enormous growth curve where it was being built into so many systems like our healthcare, like education and policing and criminal justice. 
And that was when I was, you know, truly alarmed. It's like we are treating these systems uh, as though they're somehow purportedly objective or neutral or as if they have a view from nowhere, this, you know, you know, good old Haraway's idea of the God trick, this idea that you could see into the world without consequence. Kate's referring to Donna Haraway here, the famed feminist scholar who wrote about the God trick in a 1988 paper called Situated Knowledges, The Science Question in Feminism and the Privilege of Partial Perspective. She wrote that the very notion of, quote, infinite vision is an illusion, a God trick, end quote. Here's Kate again. And it struck me that it was incredibly important that we started to study these systems as politics made material and to see the ways in which they serve the logics of the military policing and profit. So that was how I began to ask these sorts of questions and began to study large-scale AI systems. I guess I'm wondering, like, you said this uh, infrastructure of power in mm-hmm. relationship with artificial intelligence, and I think that's such a like concise, clear way of thinking about what it is. And with your project, Anatomy of an AI System, it really starts to visualize the vastness of that scale. It's really difficult to comprehend, actually. And I'm curious, like, with that work, but also more broadly in the work that you're doing, when it comes to visualizing these systems or the impacts of them, what are you trying to help people understand? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this question. And it's interesting because in some ways I see visualization itself as a trap. <laughs> you can try to visualize something, but particularly with these vast infrastructural systems, it's almost impossible. And, and actually working at the limits of impossibility is, is something that I find really interesting as a creative project as much as a, as a sort of scholarly project. So to, to tell you the backstory of Anatomy of AI, this was a project with Vladan Jola, who's an incredible artist and, and visualizer. We met at a conference and the conference was focused on voice-enabled AI. So things like Siri, Cortana, Alexa. And we were thinking, how would you even show people what it takes to make something like Alexa work? You know, for, for people who don't use Alexa every day, it's, it's Amazon's proprietary system for voice engagement and participation. So often appears in, in these little cylinders called an echo unit that you can put on your kitchen bench or inside your bedroom, which allows you to essentially speak to, engage with, and summon answers back. You could say, Alexa, you know, what's the weather today? Right now, it's 38 degrees Fahrenheit with cloudy skies. Alexa, what's the traffic like? Traffic on Forbes Avenue looks good. There are no incidents reported. And people see these systems as somehow magical, as somehow, you know, completely ethereal, living in the cloud, performing these extraordinary feats of, of search and response. But of course, they're, they're extremely material technologies. And to make a single Amazon Echo unit, you have to be mining rare earth minerals and lithium from the ground. You need to be working in these enormous logistical chains of smelting and extraction. And then ultimately you can talk about the technical layer where all of these voices, all of those engagements that you have with these agents are recorded, harvested, analyzed, and, and, and kept indefinitely in some cases. And then of course, you have to think about the end of life of these systems. Often, you know, a unit like an Echo is only you know, kept for three or four years and then thrown away. And where does that end up? It ends up in these giant e-waste tips in places like Ghana and Pakistan. So what Vladan and I thought about was, how would you show 
that life cycle, the birth, life and death of, of, of one of these AI systems? And then how would you begin to show the tendrils, those sort of extraordinary outreaches of systems that are all implicated in making one of these things work in essentially giving us this tiny moment of convenience where we can say, oh, you know, Alexa, you know, what's a recipe for, you know, making dinner tonight? Okay, for dinner, I recommend slow cooker ribs from Tasty. That moment of choosing to speak to a system rather than opening a book is invoking this massive planetary system of computation and extraction. So we began to draw this essentially on, you know, we had one piece of paper and we found that we reached the edges of the pieces of paper. So we got more and more and more until we had sort of 50 pieces of paper in front of us. And we ended up creating this very large wall-sized installation called Anatomy of an AI System which is accompanied with a, a long-form essay and a newspaper that gets printed when it's, when it's shown in a gallery context. But even there, it sort of, for me, began a type of obsession with showing these systems of extraction as material, tracing their stories in the earth in places where, you know, commonly we don't think about, you know, computers as being connected to, to soil and sand and oil and energy, but they profoundly are, and that's precisely how they work. So that, for me, has become a major focus and, and is certainly a core theme that I'm pursuing in, a, in my new book, which is you know, coming out shortly, called Atlas of AI. So it became a multi-year project of, of really trying to think about these systems of, of planetary extraction. Yeah, it's also, I love this paradox in the way that this technology is presented to us and the way that most people encounter it, like you're saying, this kind of magic where you go, Alexa, play new <laughs> trap music <laughs> and it does its best but at the same time it's like there's very much a material reality around the cloud and I always found it so I guess problematic <laughs> that it was mm -hmm. insisted upon this idea this fantasy that it's immaterial that it isn't taking up land and it isn't using resources mm -hmm. I also really love this phrase the limits of possibility I think I find that to be, in my own investigations with technology, always where I'm pushing against. With this more recent research you've been doing about land specifically, and how, can you explain how artificial intelligence is being used to sort of image or surveil the landscape? Absolutely. I mean, I think certainly in terms of the work that I was doing for the Atlas of AI book, I was really looking at the way in which artificial intelligence is profoundly of the land and, and built by, you know, everything from minerals and oil and coal and water, the way in which to create AI systems, you're, you're literally carving out the earth to fuel these highly energy intensive infrastructures. But also at the same time that these are technologies of mapping. And so the way in which many leaders in the AI field will say, you know, we are using this technology to, to map every space of the earth, or we're using it to map the entire world of objects, or we're using it to map the internal landscapes of people's emotions, which is something that we see with the rise of affect detection, which is, you know, I find deeply scientifically suspect and politically so. All of these landscapes are simultaneously being used as sites to extract data, make predictions, and feed those predictions back into systems of profit and control. So thinking about 
the way that mapping happens in those strategic political strata, I think is, is certainly something that, that is really important to thinking about the geographies of, of artificial intelligence. But now, of course, that type of mapping is, is, is incredibly intimate. It's, you know, it's happening in the home space, you know, people using things like Amazon ring cameras to constantly record their doorsteps and their streets. You're seeing all of these kinds of spaces that were previously off limits to permanent surveillance being signed into these sort of commercial networks of constant recording and extraction. So I, th- I sort of think about this, this moment as being one where we have to think about landscapes very differently. I'm thinking of redlining too. Anytime I see maps, I'm like, why is this so benign to people? Like this, the only reason you would need to have this much information is if you plan to steal it in some way or take it in some way. You know, you think about colonialism, you think about explorations, like that whole field to me from its inception, that's what it was about. Yes. I mean, it's it's something I've been thinking a lot about, obviously, I mean, in, in relation to thinking about the politics of the Atlas. I think it's this really powerful both a metaphor and a sort of a literal activity that's 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 going on with artificial intelligence is the making of maps and and that does have this deep connection to colonialism and to maps of domination and carving up territory along the fault lines of state power and we could think about the direct interventions of drawing borders across contested spaces in the colonial parts of empire and you can also think about how even in the way you might look at google maps you know that where national borders are represented, say, between India and Pakistan is shown differently, whether you're accessing that map in India or Pakistan, or you're accessing it from the US. And, and, and that idea that that these are you know, shifting boundaries in order to accord with forms of state power is, is absolutely plain on the face of it when, when you're studying these systems. But it's interesting too, because I think maps can mean many things and you can actually do forms of counter mapping, you know, maps that kind of work against those, those forms of power. And I think in some ways, one of, one of my favorite essays on this comes from Laureen Daston, who thinks about, you know, how cloud atlases began to become part of a scientific record. Some quick context here. Lorraine Daston is a science historian and the essay Kate's referring to is called Cloud Physiognomy. It draws a parallel between the historical classification of clouds by way of cloud atlases to various forms of physiognomy, including facial recognition. Like humans, clouds are complicated, and when we focus too much on only a few physical qualities, a lot of that complexity gets lost. The idea of the cloud atlas is that you were trying to school the eye, you were trying to teach people that this is how you would see clouds, think about them, focus the observer's attention and, and draw them to considering particular telling details or, or particular characteristics. So we think in some ways with counter mapping or atlas making, you have this ability to actually engage in a creative act. You know, it's, it's a political and aesthetic intervention. You're bringing together the kind of possibility of rereading the world, of having different kinds of disparate landforms, um, seeing them in new ways and editing and piecing them together. And so I think that cartographic approach, if you try to think of it outside of a sort of colonial mode of, of, of control, can actually become these sorts of collective endeavours of saying, this is how we experience our, our local space, our land, our set of ideas. So yeah, I like this idea that somehow 
by thinking about maps differently, by taking them away from the kind of great houses of AI and thinking about what they could do for us. We're sort of bridging the known and the unknown in, in new ways and, and using them really as testaments of collective knowledge and insight. Yeah, I've been interested in that within my own work and how people interpret space or what their kind of psychogeographies are. You've talked also about how AI systems shape or influence like embodiment, and that's another big interest for me that follows, I think, these mapping. Like there can be a kind of cognitive distortion. When I discovered that the map that I had been taught as a child was not actually what things looked like and that it contained within like its form distortions that were based on how an ideology or worldview was being taught to me. And I mean, I learned this pretty young. I think I was like in high school or something like this, but it's something I know a lot of people take for granted. (laughs) And so I'm always thinking about how those distortions then play out. If we're going to consider countermapping as a strategy for resisting some of these more predatory types of mapping, we need to know what we're up against. And when we think about mapping the landscape as it relates to photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence today, we inevitably think about drones and what that God's eye perspective is and isn't capable of seeing. I am Arthur Holland Michelle. Arthur is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs. He focuses on issues related to artificial intelligence, autonomy, and emerging surveillance technologies. I'm also a journalist and an author. My first book came out in 2019. It's called Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All. To an outside observer, it might seem like the drone has only just burst onto the scene in the last few years, but the drone has existed in some way, shape, or form for over a hundred years. There have been a whole range of different iterations of the technology, starting around the time of the First World War as sort of more or less pretty rudimentary remote control aircraft with simple guidance systems and then evolving from there. Another dimension that was important in all this is that the the notion of aerial watching, of observing your object of interest, be it a natural feature of the landscape or an adversary from the sky, has existed for almost as long as photography itself. And indeed, in the earliest cases of soldiers being able to actually get up into the sky, the first known instances that we have is of French soldiers in the mid-19th century using hot air balloons, was a, a desire to use that technology to watch the adversary and to once photography became a viable proposition in in those kinds of circumstances to take photographs from the air. There's a 19th century French artist known as Nadar who made a famous lithograph of a gentler version of this phenomenon, of a photographer soaring over Paris in a hot air balloon. His face is pressed to the camera, which is angled down toward the city. He is so absorbed in his task that he seems not to notice that his top hat is flying off. The print is from 1863, and it's called 
Nadar Elevating Photography to Art. And in our contemporary context, it sort of looks like a clunky analog drone, because that's basically what a drone is, a combination of flight and imaging. There's a voyeur quality to the Nadar print that speaks to some of our contemporary concerns too. Who has allowed that God's eye view and what they're using it to discern? The AI layer in all this is even scarier as machine learning is now being used to read and analyze the images and data that drones capture. Yes, there are some real concrete and practical concerns about using artificial intelligence to conduct this analysis, to glean information from Uh, not only aerial data, but any kind of data source, because uh, machines see the world in black and white, and they are not open to the possibility of nuance or ambiguity or confusion or uncertainty. And that is, is dangerous in, in the context of aerial surveillance it's dangerous in the context of manual aerial surveillance. There are so many stories of drone operators seeing what they hand on heart could swear was a group of individuals preparing for a terrorist attack on US forces in Afghanistan or Iraq, but actually turned out to be something else. The enticing nature of aerial imagery can very quickly draw you into a trap of certainty. I think almost in a way that is more extreme than traditional photography. Just because the aerial view is so data rich and and so empowering. If humans who are actually very adept in some respects at being open to and acknowledging ambiguity and uncertainty can fall into those same traps of empowered certainty with aerial imagery. The AI is is going to multiply that problem significantly. And simply put, I mean, you cannot code an algorithm to be open to the level of uncertainty that exists in in the world. It is just an, an absolute impossibility. We'll hear more on this topic from Arthur in our next and final episode. But before we return to me and Kate, I want to share one more perspective. An analog counterpoint to this trap of certainty that large-scale AI and drones can produce, in this case, by way of an intimate, on-the-ground photography practice. Because in order to assess the land and our impact on it, we need to consider all ways of seeing and look for the things that AI can miss. My name is Richard Mizrak. I have been a photographer for, I guess, 50 years now, which is amazing to me, half a century. And um, early on, I discovered the desert, American desert landscape. I photographed elsewhere, like in uh, Louisiana, several times in Hawaii, and I've worked in different places, but especially the American desert West has proven to be a rich terrain, both symbolically, visually, 
because civilization stands in relief against it. I always think of the the desert as kind of a stage where where things act out on it and you can see it, it's very visible. So the desert has always been kind of both a symbolic place to work uh, in terms of talking about America, but also I love being in the desert. I love the heat, the space, the dryness. The physically being there has been a kind of an important component of my efforts over the years. Richard is best known for his Desert Cantos, an ongoing series of photographs documenting this very particular place. The photographs are arresting, some as large as 8 by 10 feet. The scale can be intentionally overpowering, as many of the images seem to place you, the viewer, physically in a vast, sometimes beautiful, sometimes ominous landscape. Each canto is a variation, a new perspective on the desert landscape a new approach. I'll let Richard explain. The Desert Cantos is something that I formally began around 1979. And over the years, I've, I'm, I'm now up to uh, the 40th Desert Canto. And it's a really simple idea. I was trying to read Ezra Pound's Cantos, which was a 50-year-long epic poem. And I couldn't understand much of what, what was going on. It was really dense. It's written in seven languages, including Chinese ideograms. And each chapter added a component to it. And in photography, I had never seen that done before. So I basically, I borrowed the Cantos concept. It's a structural concept, really. It's very simple. And applied it to my desert series. So I would work on one, say, essay about desert fires and its impact on the environment or a man-made flood in in Southern California desert or a bombing range in the Nevada desert. Then I'd put that with the other cantos and suddenly you'd get a much more epic narrative about civilization, American civilization in particular, but larger civilization and the development and changes going on in the world. And those cantos, on one hand, they were sometimes they were documentary in nature, but then I would also look at conceptual or theoretical or metaphorical uses of photography. The first book I did, called Desert Cancels, the first four, were of a space shuttle landing, fires, floods, and these were kind of almost biblical, right? And then later cantos, like my skies, were driven more by conceptual and theoretical concerns. Back in the day, I had, I've had four or five Volkswagen campers since my college days. And I would just travel the American West. I would chase the light wherever there was cloud action. I would go in that direction. And I would spend two or three weeks camping in the back of my camper. And, you know, I threw my eight by 10 camera in there with a tripod and coolers with film holders and film in it. And I would just spend two to three weeks just traveling the deserts looking for pictures. And I never knew what I would find. In fact, often I would get a really brilliant idea for a, a, a canto or a project, and I'd go there, and it just it wouldn't it wouldn't manifest. Inevitably, those ended up really flat. So no predetermined project ever worked. But when I would go in my van, just be open. What I used to call aggressively receptive. Just be open, wander around, and see what I could discover. I would discover, again, bombing ranges or the nuclear test sites or space shuttle landings. These were things that at first I wasn't even looking for. I only discovered them by accident. And that was part of the process was just simply 
getting in a Volkswagen camper and driving and looking and sleeping where you can just pull off the side of the road in the American desert. And the bottom line is, is it's really about discovery. When I began photographing the border wall in 2009 in earnest, you know, I, I knew about the border. I knew about what was going on there in general. But boy, when I drove there with my camera and I went to almost the 2,000 miles, drove along the wall, wherever I could get access to the, the actual border wall or the border, I would get there. And I discovered that it's, it's not this homogeneous notion that everybody in America has about what the border is. From Tijuana to Nogales to Brownsville, those towns are radically different from one another. And there's no way you can know that except for by being on the ground, wandering along the wall, and discovering what's there. So that was a big revelation. And that probably mirrors my revelation for many of my projects. Going out on Bravo 20 bombing range in the 1980s, nobody was out there. To sit there and drive on this you know, Mad Max landscape and just camp there with my 90-pound German Shepherd Kodak, you know, you can see pictures of it in the newspaper. You can hear stories about it. But unless you see it yourself, you, you, you don't know what's going on. And I would say that photography is basically a license to learn about all that and share the best you can. But I know that there's no way it can really convey the full richness of what that means. One of the things I think about is that whenever photography grows a new technology, evolves a new technology, which has you know, been over the years, keeps happening. Originally, there was the daguerreotype, and then there was the negative, and then there was 35 millimeter. These technologies that we have, they can be used for good or for ill. And that is the key. It's not that any of these technologies are intrinsically bad. In fact, there may be great value to them. It's tricky on how we manage them and use them. And that's an issue. I think you can say the same about photography going back to its seminal uses, which, you know, helped develop the West and ultimately even exploit the West. Richard is referring to early American landscape photography here, and specifically a late 19th century government-sponsored survey of the American West. The resulting photographs by Timothy O'Sullivan and others are sweeping and often beautiful and did help inspire early environmental and preservation movements like the national parks. But they're part of a complicated history. O'Sullivan was a pioneer of geophotography. His images documenting the landscape were used as assessments of the land that helped inform American efforts of westward expansion, resource mining, settlement, and exploitation. In a way, it's an earlier form of the kind of predatory mapping that Kate and I were talking about earlier, the kind that aims to exploit. Photography in itself isn't the problem. It's how we use things and exploit things. And I think that's true of artificial intelligence and uh, robotics. Photography can be very practical, you know, functional uh, by the lumber companies or the petrochemical companies, for sure. But I also think in other uses, photography can become poetry, you know? It's remarkable what you can do with photography, and it's got the dark side too. Photography itself is neutral. It's how we use it. It's as simple as that. Same thing with artificial intelligence. There are great, great boons to be gotten from artificial intelligence, and there's great exploitation potential. I mean, I, I can only imagine in 10 years, 20 years, 
the advances in both those areas. And I think we need to be really careful because they can be used for ill. But they also have great benefits for mankind. They might help us in many ways that we can't even imagine now. And I think photography's done that too. This all gets back to a term Kate Crawford uses a lot when talking about AI, extraction, the extraction of resources, the extraction of labor, the extraction of data, all of which happens simultaneously in a way. How do we use these systems ethically? It's a big question I have. And how should we be considering with our continued use and proliferation of the environmental impacts? Because I feel like a lot of times it's not even clear, Mm -hmm. so it's hard to make considered choices. Right, right. I mean, it's interesting because I think rather than the word ethics, I I tend to use the word politics in this context. This is sort of the, the politics of these systems and how we can or cannot opt out of using them. It is fundamentally a collective action problem. This is not something that individuals should made to be to feel responsible for trying to make the right choices. That's the kind of neoliberal framework of individual responsibility that I think so many of the current discourses around tech have have unfortunately fallen into that trap. There are dependencies that are built throughout these systems. So really, we have to be asking about you know what are the sort of collective politics of refusal that are possible here? How do we make spaces and worlds? that don't place these sorts of technologies at the very center. Because I think that if we're going to move towards greater justice, we have to think about these sites of extraction simultaneously because they are so deeply interlaced. Remember at the beginning of the episode when we said we were going to look at two different threads as they relate to the impact that photography, surveillance, and AI can have on our planet? The environmental impact of the technology itself and the colonial impulses spurred by the kind of mapping and documentation this technology can enable. Well, here's where those two threads meet and potentially end. When I really sort of think about what we might imagine these underlying ideologies of extractions leading to, we might ask, like, what's the end point? Like, what's what's the limit to which they extend? And, and certainly one of the things that I've been researching in Atlas of AI is, is is looking at why so many of the titans of AI, the the mega billionaires, by you know I'm thinking about here, Jeff Bezos, but also Elon Musk and others, are investing heavily in space. That the telos of this sort of work, that of all of the the billions that have been generated from their sort of their AI platforms and tools, are now being sunk into creating space infrastructures of extraction, in some cases looking at things like asteroid mining um, or the colonization of, of other planets, which is something that that both Musk and, and Bezos talk about extensively and, and invest heavily in through their companies, SpaceX and Blue Origin. I think there we see something that really troubles me, which is a recognition on the part of these companies that Growth is now limited. We've we've reached the end of, of what we can do and that this idea of constant growth is impossible on a planet that's undergoing such extraordinary stress. And so now the focus is on space. How can space be sort of mined and turned into the next side of, of, of profit? And 
to, to some degree, I feel like that's sort of this profound moment of giving up on Earth and saying, well, if we can't continue the growth curve here, we have to look into space, rather than questioning why is growth necessary? Why is this constant obsession with growth and profit-making and, and increased extraction? Why are we not critical of that as, as, a, as a mode of living? And, and certainly if you look at the just staggering kinds of wealth and wealth inequality, I mean, just, just you know, one of the things that, that we did for Anatomy was really looking at how much Jeff Bezos makes per day compared to, say, one of the, the miners in the Congo that extract the cobalt that are used in so many of the systems that Amazon relies on. I mean, you're talking about the fact that it would take 700,000 years for one miner to earn the amount that that Bezos would make in a single day. And those numbers have only gone up uh, since COVID and since, of course, Amazon has, has become ever more enriched. So for me, the question is this. It's like, where does this ideology end? What is the limit of extraction? And, and what we're seeing is that, you know, there is no limit. There's this mythic belief that you can infinitely extract, even if that means, you know, abandoning Earth and, and, and traveling to other planets. And I think that to me is 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 where we see the the, the true horror of that as a, as a template for living, and why I think we need to be far more critical of these underlying assumptions of of how we should be relating to each other and to the planet that we live on. You talk about how the scale is too big for individual responsibility, but I'm finding it difficult to have any optimism in terms of like government regulation, like they're starting to do these antitrust cases, but those companies already have so much power. It seems also difficult to have a kind of grassroots rebellion with that. And I'm interested very much in like speculation and imagination and these radical possibilities. It just seems like you need so many resources and you would need this kind of scale to have like an alt AI. I mean, Scale is is the key issue and, and something that I've been doing a lot of work on is like, how do you intervene in scaled systems? How do you even understand or study or, or show scaled systems? It's one of the key motivating questions in, in so much of what I do. And the politics of scale, I think, underlie many of the, the reasons that we are in the place that we're in, which is that we think about a lot of the large scale machine learning systems. It's about how do we do analysis and prediction at scale in ways that are much cheaper and much easier to do than, say, paying people to do things. You could take the example of, say, contact tracing in COVID, right? So we've got a very long history in public health and epidemiology of using humans to interview a person who's been exposed to a virus and to say, okay, where have you been? Who have you spoken to? that's, you know, it's effective. It is also resource intensive. And so you've seen this kind of will to technological solutionism say, hey, we can have apps that will do that, you know, at a fraction of the cost and be able to scale. And what we find is that in that shift to scale, you open up a range of, you know, serious threats and concerns in terms of well, how else is that data going to be used? Who gets to use it? How long is it is it stored? And also, how is that data itself misinterpreted the way that it sort of gathers data very differently? And then, you know, which communities are most harmed by the way in which punitive stakes are put in relation to technology? And again, it's, it's black and brown communities. It's low-income communities who face the greatest risks from the way in which that data could be used against them. So... Really, when we're talking about scale, it becomes 
really important to think about what forms of politics scale. And one of the responses that I've seen, and it's completely understandable, is a real focus on localism. And I think that's, you know, under COVID, very natural. And how do you think about sort of politics and mutual aid and resistance in a local formulation? It seems like there's a bigger consciousness in terms of public acknowledgement of how these things are intertwined in our lives. But do you feel like people are becoming more aware and asking these questions and a part of like your audience? Absolutely. You know, trying to move against the traditional politics of academia is something that's always really motivated me. And I'm interested in how do we bring this, the sorts of investigations that both of us do into public spaces of discourse and critical engagement, just opening up often opaque systems to scrutiny. I think that's, that's something that art spaces do extremely well. And I do think we are at a moment in terms of the widespread deployment of artificial intelligence in every form of life that we urgently need those type of conversations to be public. People need to feel empowered to have those conversations and and hopefully to push back and to also find a type of politics of refusal, if you will, the ability to say, no, we know we don't want facial recognition, you know, in our public housing building, or no, we don't want predictive policing in the streets of Baltimore, you know, to try and get to a place where people feel that they have an understanding of these systems sufficiently that they can actually act against them. Thank you for listening. On our next and final episode, we'll continue on this idea of seeking a politics of refusal. We'll look at how photography, surveillance, and AI are used to exert power by states and corporations, but also how artists and activists are using those very same tools to push back. Mirror with a Memory is a production of the Hillman Photography Initiative at Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh. For more information on the artists and thinkers featured in this episode, please visit cmoa.org slash podcast.